Our scripture reading today with the sermon is from Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. So, as we've mentioned, t- today is Christ the King Sunday. It's a very exciting time to celebrate the reign of our God and his sovereignty. When Mark told me I would be preaching this Sunday, I knew exactly what passage I wanted to use to celebrate this reign. Revelations, Revelation 21 through 6. Um, For those of you who are familiar with this passage, you might be a little surprised because this is the probably the most controversial passage in the Bible, and we'll discuss that controversy a little later, but first I want to look at this passage in its own context. So we're in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, which describes the end of the world as Jesus comes back. At the beginning of the book, we are told that the author's name is John. And he has received a vision that he wants to share with many churches throughout the Roman Empire. And at the time of John's writing, Romans and Jews were starting to heavily persecute the Christians. And so it was a very hard time for the church where many were leaving the faith so they wouldn't be killed or shunned by their communities. It was either written during the reign of Nero or another Roman emperor named Domitian. But either way, it wasn't a very good situation. Uh, Nero was known to persecute Christians, and he, when there was a fire that destroyed a big section of Rome, he pointed the fingers, his finger at Christians out of spite. Historians now believe that he started the fire. But he liked to punish Christians by sewing them into animal skins and letting hungry wild dogs out out on them to kill them. And uh, both Peter and Paul were martyred during his reign. Domitian wasn't much better. He was known to punish Christians by burning them in oil, and he liked to blame all of the natural disasters on Christians. Uh, But as we know, bloodthirsty emperors did not end in the first century. And one of the most famous of all time is Napoleon of France. During the height of his reign, 
Napoleon was asked, do you think God is on the side of France? And he replied, God is on the side of the, high, of the biggest artillery. But he was proven wrong at the Battle of Waterloo when he lost and lost his empire. And so at the end of the, his life, he reflected on the sovereignty of God by quoting Thomas Akempis, a theologian. And he said, Man proposes, God disposes. So the point of John's book of Revelation is not just to teach what the end of time will look like, but to encourage Christians and churches throughout history to persevere in the face of persecution. And although we are not facing empirical persecution like those Christians, we can still look at the suffering in our world, look at the persecution of Christians around the world, and long for the coming of our King of Kings, who will make everything right. I believe the book of Revelation is relevant for all of us who are waiting for the day when Jesus will come back and right every wrong. So the passage Stacy read for us is from chapter 20, near the end of the book. And it's called the Millennial Kingdom because it describes a time when Jesus will reign over earth as king for a thousand years before the end of time. If the book of Revelation is, provide, is meant to provide hope for suffering Christians, I believe that the millennial kingdom is too. So we're going to read this passage again, and we're going to focus on the hope that it brings, letting, us, letting it inspire us to endure the suffering of our world and become better followers of his leadership. So let's read that again, starting with verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So in these verses, we learn that Satan isn't going to win. No matter how bad life gets, Jesus already won against evil through his death and resurrection. And now it's just a matter of time. Some Christians read this and believe that it's a future time when Satan will be bound, while other Christians believe that, it's, that Satan has been bound and that's why the church is spread around the world. But either way, we can all agree that Christ has won. Satan is not the king of the world. And one thing I noticed this morning is a connection to our psalm. Um, it mentions, Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Abaddon is the great bottomless pit that's mentioned in verse 1. And I like how the psalmist asks that. And then in our passage, we get an answer. Yes, God has control of the bottomless pit. He has the key. And we just have to have faith that he's going to do something with it. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark 
on their foreheads or on their hands. So in this utopian vision that is being described, martyrs, those who died because of their Christianity and stood up against the beast of revelation, which we won't get into, they're rising from the dead. In light of this, we don't have to fear because the worst thing that can happen to us for being Christians is death. And even then, there's going to be a resurrection. Because Jesus is victorious over Satan, and he's victorious over death. His death and ours. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So the world is the location and source of our suffering, but Jesus is sovereign over it. No matter what your situation is, this message should be encouraging to you. Because for those of us who are struggling in the U.S., Christ is king. For the people of Israel and Palestine, Christ is king. For the people of Russia and Ukraine, Christ is king. For those living under dictator kings like in North Korea or parts of Africa, Christ is king. Even in the most dire of circumstances throughout history, Jesus was king, he is king. And he will always be king. So if that's the message of this passage, why is it the most controversial passage in the Bible? Well, the problem is that all Christians can agree that this passage describes the reign of Christ, but we have trouble agreeing about when this reign of Christ will happen. Because it doesn't seem like it's heaven. We see the judgment day and the division of people into heaven and hell after this in chapter 20, and then we see the description of heaven. So it seems like this thousand-year reign comes before the end of time in some way, and there's disagreement about how that's going to happen. If you want to look at your handout, I'm going to be explaining some three theories about what this kingdom will look like. Uh, If you didn't get one, there's more on this counter over here. So the first one is called premillennialism, and it's a literal approach. Christians in this camp say that Revelation 20 tells us that Jesus will come back to earth to conquer the entire world and rule over it for a thousand years before the end of time. This theory, like I said, is called premillennialism because it says that Jesus will return before or pre his thousand year reign on earth. So as you can see, there's a cross on there. Um, The tribulation is, uh, we're not going to get into that, but we see that Jesus, the second coming, is before the millennium right there. So Jesus comes back, he reigns for a thousand years on earth, and then the last judgment happens when people are divided into heaven and hell. This past week, Sarah and I collaborated so that we could sing three songs that could help illustrate the three millennial views. And the one for premillennialism is actually going to be sung after our sermon, 
Come thou long-expected Jesus. We may be introducing Christmas a little early with this one, but verse 2 really shines some light on what premillennialism means. That second paragraph on the next page says, Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. So, while Jesus was born a king, we're still waiting for him to bring that gracious kingdom to us. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. It seems like some of that language was ripped straight out of Revelation 20. But while some Christians read this as a literal thousand-year reign before the end of time, others take a figurative approach. They see that the book of Revelation has a lot of figurative imagery throughout it, and they think that the millennial kingdom passage is figurative as well. That brings us to our second view, post-millennialism which believes that Jesus is going to return to earth after his thousand-year reign on earth. How does that work? Well, it's really a time of peace when the church is in charge, when the earth looks a lot like heaven. And through the church's leadership, Jesus is king in every way other than being physically present on earth. And so you can see on that diagram that the millennium happens at some period without a real marker and happens the thousand years before the second coming. This is the least popular, smallest view of the millennial kingdom. It was mostly popular right at the turn of the 18th to 20th century. But then two world wars happened, And people lost hope that there would be peace on earth before Christ came. The song reflecting post-millennial theology is Build Your Kingdom Here, the first one we sing, and it shines a lot of light on that view. We see in that fourth paragraph the goal of the church, to see the captives' hearts released, the hurt, the sick, the poor at peace, We lay down our lives for heaven's cause. We are your church. The church is bringing about this peace for the sick, the hurt, the poor, and releasing the captives' hearts. And then that last line is also really telling. We are your church. We are the hope on earth. That's some very post-millennial theology. The main competitor to premillennialism, since postmillennialism is not very popular, is called amillennialism, and it's that last diagram at the bottom. The A in, in amillennialism is a prefix meaning no, because they believe that there's going to be no millennium. And that's kind of an overstatement. It's not that they believe this passage is untrue, but they believe that it's symbolic. They take the figurative imagery one step further. Because a lot of numbers in the Bible, and especially in the book of Revelation, are symbolic. And so they believe that this thousand years really represents all the time from the resurrection and the birth of the church to the second coming. So we're in the millennial kingdom right now. 
Jesus is king right now, and the church is the kingdom of God. Our second song, You Are the Only King Forever, illustrates this view. And the both the verse, the chorus, and the bridge really illustrate that amillennial theology. You are the only king forever. Almighty God, we lift you higher. You are the only king forever. Forevermore, you are victorious. We lift our banner high. We lift the name of Jesus. From age to age, you reign. Your kingdom has no end. For all millennials, Jesus' reign on earth is constant from age to age with no end, not just limited to a future thousand years. The only thing that they are waiting for is heaven when total world peace will happen. So that's about as simple an explanation of the debate as I can make. If you're still confused or if you have a lot of questions, first of all, we can talk about it at some point if you want. But the main thing is it's okay if you're confused and you don't understand because I think that we make a bigger deal of these views than we should. In some Christian communities, this discussion can get very heated because some people hold their opinions of the millennial kingdom very strongly and very firmly and very hostily. (laughs) But the reality is that we can learn from each view. That's why we can sing all three of the songs I mentioned on one Sunday. Because on the surface level, they may seem contradictory, but on a deeper level, they all have different points that come together to make a very good theology. Whether the millennial kingdom is happening right now, like some believe, or it's a future for us to yearn for, John wanted this passage to offer a present and future hope. Um... I wanted to take a break to have you guys weigh in on a uh, marital debate that we've been having. Uh, Hannah and I like to sing... What? (laughs) Hannah's worried about this one. (laughs) I did warn her. Um, Hannah and I like to sing the children's song, My Father's House with Malachi. You may know it. Come and go with me to my father's house. It's a big, big house with a lot, a lot of lot, bunch and bunch of rooms or whatever, lots and lots of rooms. I didn't know that was a children's song. Oh yeah, well we like singing it. Okay, okay, we like singing it with Malachi, but um, and yeah, so we like that song a lot. But we realized the other day that we are envisioning different things when we see the song, sing the song. Because when Hannah sings it, she's saying, come and go with me to heaven, where there's a big, big table with a feast with God. There's many rooms that the Lord has been preparing for us. There's a big yard where we can play football, apparently. But for me, I always, when I was singing as a kid, I always imagined the church. Come and go with me to my father's house. We had potlucks all the time, so we had a big, big table. There were a lot of rooms where I could play hide-and-seek, and and there was definitely a yard where I played football. So it really fit for me there. I don't know how you guys feel. (laughs) You mean heaven? heaven, Yeah. I'll go with two answers. (laughs) Both? Well, the first one is, is your vision a vision of heaven? Coming back to heaven? 
<laughs> okay. She's the problem. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. I should probably just let it go. <laughs> Submit. Yeah, yeah. So, I think it's great that you're talking about how, like, when you were a kid, you were seeing this. I'm like, wait a second, I was in like high school. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure they said it was about heaven, and I think okay. it goes to Jesus's um, commentary about like the, my father's preparing me. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so uh, but I can understand your point about yeah. like how heaven is a place on earth. Like yeah. Exactly. And that's really my point, too, is that we can hold both intention. Hannah has a very premillennial view of the song, and I have a very amillennial view of the song, but it hasn't ruined our marriage yet. We're still going. We still disagree, but we think that there's a little bit of truth in both view. And so I think that can be true of the millennial kingdom as well. So what can we learn from premillennials? Well, they are the best at recognizing that the world is still fallen. Yes, Jesus died and rose from the grave, but that doesn't change the fact that people die, that relationships crumble, that nations are oppressed, that natural disasters wreck lives, that babies are aborted and miscarried, and that evil people enslave the needy. Sometimes we like to ignore or drown out these tragedies, but premillennials remind us that we should be screaming, Maranatha, Lord, come soon. They teach us that we should long for the coming of our king to right every wrong and wipe every tear. So, premillennials remind us not to ignore the evil of this world, but to long for the peace of the future. But amillennials remind us to not ignore the good in the world either. Look around. See the people whom the Lord has saved, who's helping us with our suffering. Look at us submitting ourselves to Jesus, praising him and crowning him with many crowns, meeting weekly to glorify him, and we are not alone. All around the world, people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people are doing the same thing. We are the global kingdom of God now because Christ is king now. No matter what evil person is in charge at any given time, Jesus is sovereign and protecting his sheep from eternal suffering and death. Even the post-millennials, who are rarely taken seriously, have a point that we could learn. If we are the people of God, we should be striving to spread his kingdom and his peace throughout the world. We shouldn't just be retreating to our church communities. We shouldn't embrace the fallenness of our world. Because the Bible tells us we are not fighting a losing battle. We should be out there 
fighting human trafficking, defending the poor and powerless, providing disaster relief, fighting for justice and equity within our governments, seeing the captives' hearts released. The Bible does not teach us that this is a losing battle. It may be true that we cannot perfect the world until Jesus returns, but we can better it with the hope of making a real difference. So, let us yearn for the return of our king, recognize his powerful presence now, and work for the spread of his kingdom. That's what it means to recognize Christ as king. God has always been king. He is king now, and he will be king for all eternity. When my dad was a kid, he liked to watch reruns of an animated cartoon about Superman. And he would get very excited about watching these cartoons. He'd run around pretending like he was flying like Superman and always cheer when Superman finally defeated the villain at the end of the episode and saved Lois Lane. When I was a kid, he tried to share his nostalgia with me, but I didn't really get it. Because for me, at that time when I was growing up, children's superhero shows had gotten a little bit more complicated. There were storylines that spanned multiple arcs without the villain always being defeated at the end of the episode. And the line between good and evil was sometimes a little bit less thick. For me, there was just no tension in these episodes. I didn't want to watch an episode where the villain was dumb and weak in Superman 1 easily every single time at the end of the episode. But I think that history proves me wrong about that. Because the overarching story is very black and white. God is true love. Satan is pure evil. And it's never been a contest. There's never been a time where Satan almost won, where he was looking like he was going to win. God has always been in control. My revelation professor liked to explain it as, Satan is not God's arch nemesis. He's maybe like a grunt that the superhero fights at the beginning of the episode and defeats easily. God has always been in control. He's always been king. There is no question about it. And we can have full confidence that Jesus is our king. So let's yearn for his coming. Recognize his victory now. And work for the spread of his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for redeeming us for saving us from the power of death, from the power of sin, from the power of Satan, from everything evil. God, we know that your work isn't done. We are longing for the day that you will return. But I pray that you will help us to also recognize that you have already won. There is no contest. There is no tension. We already know the end. God, I pray that you will inspire us to be better followers of you. 
to give us a desire to spread your kingdom. God, I pray that when we reflect on your reign, that you will help us to hold all three views in tension and realize that there's truth in all of them. God, we thank you that even in our darkest moments, even in the darkest moments around the world, that you are king and that you are sovereign. Give us patience. In your name, amen.